All right, if you will, turn back with me to Revelation chapter 3. Lord willing, we will complete our trilogy in the uh, letter to the church in Philadelphia this morning. Let's ask the Lord to lead us as we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this letter of encouragement that you sovereignly, sovereignly, sovereignly directed through your servant, John, to record for us this morning. I ask, Lord, that you would help us as we study your word, that you would give us clarity of thought and mind. Lord, that you would help us to set aside the distractions, the weariness of the path, Lord, that you would refresh us in your word this morning, that you would feed your sheep, that you would be exalted and glorified. We ask for your help this morning. We commit ourselves into your hands and we praise you for what you're going to do. In your name we pray. As we wrap up our study to in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, there is a, an amazing reminder um, in this last point. We, we had three points in our outline to the Church in Philadelphia. We were on point three this morning. And I was immensely encouraged um, as I as I studied for this and I told Nicole I, I she got she was a recipient of my excitement and I hope that conveys to you guys this morning I was praying hard that the Lord would use this to encourage you there is um, there is a striking similarity with the Church of Philadelphia in that they are small and insignificant. And this is, as we said, one of the two churches that um, did not receive rebuke from the Lord Jesus. We looked at, over the past two weeks, the introduction from the Holy One in verse 7, and then the encouragement. Um, As Jesus takes up the cause of the church in Philadelphia to defend them from their enemy, And it's interesting to me that the two churches that don't have rebuke have the same common enemy, um, if you will. The uh, the rival for the Church of Philadelphia is, as we read, the synagogue of Satan. And we looked at in detail last week about who is Israel. Our understanding, and I am more convinced than ever, our understanding of who is Israel has everything to do with how we understand this book. It's a vitally important distinction. And, and as we looked at last week, scripture has much to say about it. But point number two in, in dealing with and responding to the charge of the synagogue of Satan, we are reminded that despite the claims of the religious synagogue of Satan, salvation belongs to God. And, and David reminds us in Psalm 3 verse 8, that it is Jesus who defines who are the sheep and who get to enter into the fold and find pasture. Salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing be on your people. Jesus told the church in Philadelphia to be encouraged because the synagogue of Satan did not have final say into who entered the kingdom. Jesus did. So it brings us to point number three this morning. And that is this, the promised blessing. And I want to uh, 
to look from verses 10 through 13. We didn't get to uh, all the way through verse 10 last week, so I'm going to pick up there. And in verse 10, we find, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that you may seize, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to see, first of all, promise number one that we have from Christ here as we conclude this letter to the church in Philadelphia is he promises them that he will keep them from spiritual danger. That's an important distinction because in verse 10, he says, you have kept my word about patient endurance. And because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Here is the promise of Christ. He will keep those who keep his word. A reminder from him that keepers are kept. He is the one that does the keeping. Um, He enables us to keep his word. And we'll look at what that means. But he says, you've kept the word of my patient endurance. What does that mean? You have kept my word about patient endurance. Remember, The charge of the synagogue of Satan was that they could get to God, what? On their own terms. Ethnic Israel, unbelieving Israel, wanted to get to God. How? By keeping the law. They rejected the Messiah. Jesus reminds the church in Philadelphia about his patient endurance. And for that, I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to look at verses one through four. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture this morning to help us um, bring some clarity to, I think, a, a pretty weighty passage this morning. So bear with me. I'm going to try and keep you awake by helping you with turning lots of pages. So if I don't hear rustling, that means you're falling asleep or you have an electronic Bible. All right. Hebrews chapter 12. Verses one through four. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Thank you for that reminder this morning, brother, as we studied in Second Samuel. It continues, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, listen to this, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. We uh, were going through an awesome book on our men's Bible study on Friday nights. And this past week was, I think, chapter six. 
And it was called The Language of the Marketplace. And the book, the subject matter of the book is on atonement. And James Boyce writes um, this particular chapter. And I was really challenged by it this week and, and greatly encouraged. He goes into in detail um, the story of Hosea and speaking specifically about redemption, Christ buying back um, what was his. And in Hosea chapters one through three, it plays out this story and, and it shocks you. It really shocks you. If, if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea, you should be. But um, God goes to Hosea and says, I want you as a picture to the nation of Israel. I want you to go marry a prostitute. And not only are you going to marry her, but you're going to love her. And you're going to have children with her. And I'm going to tell you what you're going to name those children. You're going to name those children, number one, scattered. You're going to name the second child, no mercy. And you're going to name the third child, not my people. Think about that if you're Hosea. You're going to love your wife when your wife doesn't love you. And after she bears you those three children, she's going to leave you. And she's going to go move in with other men. And she's going to embarrass you publicly. And you're going to be the laughing stock of your friends and your neighbors. And then while she's cheating on you, she is going to so degrade herself that she moves from man to man to man. And her situation gets more precipitous as she progresses from one man to the next until to the point that she is with a man who can no longer take care of her. And she is so degraded that she is with him, but without any food, without any clothes. And Hosea, you're going to go knock on his door. And you're going to say, I'm here to take care of my wife. And you're going to leave food and clothes for her. Then you're going to leave. And then she, while she's with that man, he will die and she will be sold into slavery. And the picture of the, picture of the marketplace in which she is sold as a slave is shocking. She is so debased that in her own nakedness and shame, she is put on display for the whole countryside to see as she is put up for sale. And Hosea, I'm going to tell you to go buy her. You're going to pay 15 pieces of silver for her who already belongs to you. And you're going to have to walk right through that crowd to the center of that town, and you're going to have to take your wife, pay for her, and then lead her through the crowd and take her home. And what an amazing, shocking picture that is of God's redemptive grace and mercy, because that wife, that prostitute is us. It's us. You put yourself in Hosea's place and you think, how could that man have endured what he went through. And it was God's grace and his redemptive love 
to buy back what was already his. That's the picture of redemption. And Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I am going to bring the synagogue of Satan to their knees. And I'm going to demonstrate to them that I have loved you. Just an amazing picture to me as I, I think about God's redemptive grace and his promises. How can he promise to protect the church? This is what the church is. So what is this promise of protection that we get from Jesus here? Is this a promise that there will be no physical harm to us? Mm -mm. In, in, uh, John, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, we remember John introduced himself as, as this. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is in bonds in prison as he's writing this letter to the church of Philadelphia. And John reminds the seven churches, I am your brother in tribulation. What you go through, I am going through as well. We looked at the, at the uh, letter to Smyrna. In Revelation chapter 2. And this was the other church that was not rebuked. And yet, listen to what this church went through. Verse 8, chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your what? Tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful, what? Unto death. And I will give some of you, or I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the promise of Christ to the church? Not that we will not go through tribulation, not that we will not suffer, but you will not be hurt by the second death. And that's the picture of final judgment. In Revelation chapter 7, and I understand that people view this differently, but Revelation 7 is an amazing picture of the complete body of Christ, the elect in its entirety. And in Revelation 7, verse 13, one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of or through the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are the sealed coming out of or through great tribulation. I want you to see this. There is no promise for a removal of pain or suffering or testing, but a promise to keep us through it. That's an important distinction. While much of modern evangelicalism is, is uh, fully on board with the idea that the church will be taken out of all this, I don't see it here. I just don't. And I know we have brothers and sisters that believe differently on this. But the more I study this, the more I'm convinced that it is God's design to take us through the fire. 
where he will sanctify his bride. But he says, I'm going to spare you from this hour. I'm going to, I'm going to save you. The hour of trial is short, but it is an intense period of testing. I'm going to give you just a, a few scriptural examples of this verbiage that we see from John here regarding the hour. In Luke chapter 12, verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you, and when they bring you before the synagogues, and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself and what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In John 16, 2, Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whosoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Doing God a favor. I mean, this was the story of Paul, wasn't it? Paul thought he was in the service of God as he persecuted believers. John 17, 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Paul says in Romans 13, 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Children, 1 John 2, 18, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Revelation 14, 7, 14, 15, 17, 12, 18, 10. These all refer to the hour. Um, Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. There is a separation that we see. And the word from there is from the Greek ek. It's the prefix, if you will, to the word for church, which is what? Yes. Excellent. Mark had his coffee this morning. The church is the ecclesia, the called out ones. I want you to see something here. This is important. All true believers have been separated or called out from this world to the kingdom of God. And the phrasing that we see regarding those who dwell on the earth, there's a difference here. And I want to point this out to you this morning, because we'll touch on this again as we commence our study in the book of Revelation. I want you to see that there's a difference between the called out ones, the ecclesia, if you will, and those who, quote, dwell on the earth, unquote. Jesus says there is a great trial coming for those who dwell on the earth. So the, the question is, who are those that dwell on the earth? Now, at first glance, you would say, well, I'm here. Naturally speaking, I dwell on the earth. But let's, let's dig a little deeper. There's a difference here. 
And when we talk about trial, Jesus is not promising the church in Philadelphia that they will be taken out from it, but that they will be kept in it. I'm reminded of the quote from Spurgeon who says, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts one person or some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. The same circumstance for the unbelieving has a completely different effect than the same circumstance for the believer. Why? Well, is God working more than one purpose at one time? Yeah, he does. He hardens the unbelieving while he softens the wax. That's the point that, that uh, Spurgeon's talking about. But my point is in, in, in asking that question, can he do, does he have more than one purpose at one time, is while he's bringing trial and testing on the world, and the word Greek word per, perasmos there can have a couple different meanings. It can be a temptation to sin. You're, you're, you're going through that in the book of James. Can be a temptation to sin, and it can also be a trial or a test for the unbelieving. There's a picture here of the hardening of sin. I want you to see something here. Who are those that dwell on the earth? Look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on who? Those who dwell on the earth. Revelation 11, verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So observation number one regarding those that dwell on the earth, those are the, the ones who, have, who murder martyrs in the book of Revelation. You're not going to find in the book of Revelation, and I say this with all authority because I checked, promise. You can look, and I would urge you to, but when you study those who dwell on the earth in the book of Revelation, there's not one positive connotation attached to that statement. So, first of all, those who dwell on the earth are those who martyr or murder the martyrs. Revelation 13, verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name. And listen to this. And his dwelling. That is. Are you guys paying attention? Are you following me? This is important. He's uttering blasphemies against God. Blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who what? Well, in heaven. So there's a distinction here, isn't there? There's those who dwell on earth and those who dwell in heaven. The ones who dwell on earth, who make earth their dwelling place, are blaspheming against those who dwell in heaven. Hmm. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given. It over every tribe and people and language and nation and all 
who dwell on the earth will worship it. That is the beast. Everyone whose name had not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. The second point that I would make to you regarding those who dwell on the earth is that they are those who worship the beast. Now we'll get into that. Not going to take a lot of time on that this morning. And then the third one we see in Revelation chapter 17. Verse one, and then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who was seated on many waters with the with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality, the dwellers on the earth have become drunk to catch it. Revelation 17, 6, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Every instance that we find in the book of Revelation regarding those who dwell on the earth, it is the the exact opposite of those who dwell in heaven. Now, the question for you and I is, we're on earth. What do we make of this? What's a good question. John chapter 17, you will turn there with me. I want to take just a minute here, but I want to point something out. Jesus references the term world in John 17, 10 times, 10 distinct times. He references they, them, those, or these 44 times. And in every instance, there is a stark comparison between them, those, or they, and the world. Okay, turn, turn there if you're, if you're not. John chapter 17. Father, the hour has come. Mm, there it is again. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is life eternal that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. By the way, what is the context of, of John 17? You remember? A high priestly prayer, and we find Jesus praying this prayer where? The Garden of Gethsemane, just before he is, is given up in betrayal. Jesus says to the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Listen, out of the world. Jesus is making a very clear distinction. I have manifested your glory and your word, your name to the people that you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Same language here, by the way, that John uses in Revelation chapter 3. You've kept my word. Verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I come from you meaning that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Messiah. The synagogue of Satan denied that. 
very distinctive truth. They know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying. Are you seeing this? I'm not praying the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine, or all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, I want you to see something. There's an amazing continuity of scripture. And as you study it, you see it. At the end of this chapter, or the the letter to the church in Philadelphia, there's, and it's the same way for all the letters, the promised blessing is that God will fellowship with his people. And there's a picture of intimacy and closeness. I want you to see as we're reading through John 17, the end goal for Jesus is he is about to go to the cross and spill his blood to redeem those that the Father has given to him is what? That they may be one as we are one. The end goal for the redemption work of the Lord Jesus Christ is to bring all things together, meaning all the people of God into intimate fellowship with him, Father. That is his desire. That is his goal. That is the picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That union. While I was with them, verse 12, I kept them in your name. You have given which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, meaning Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. But I have given them your word. Listen, and the world has hated them. Because they, what, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Look at verse 15. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. These, are you seeing the pattern here? Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. God's design for those that the father has given to the son is to sanctify them with his word in the world while they're in it, but not of it. Who are the dwellers of the world? Yes, those who are in it and of it and those who love it, right? Love not the world, neither the things of the world. And then verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. Same words that Jesus gives to the church in Philadelphia. I am going to show the world that I love you, Hosea's wife, Gomer. I am going to show the world. This is God's glory on absolute display. He is going to take the unlovable and show the world the base, 
the unlovable of the world that he is going to, by his grace, elevate them and glorify himself in the salvation of his people out of the world. Luke 21, verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We, we looked at this, not in detail in this regard, but in Revelation chapter 2, when we looked at the letter to the church of Pergamum, what did Jesus tell them? In verse 13, I know where you what? Well, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan wells. I don't know about you, but it's good to get home. And I, uh, most of you guys know, been praying for years that the Lord would allow me to work closer to home, and the Lord answered that prayer. And since June, have been working from home, and what a blessing that is. And how coming home every Friday and walking in the, the house, if you've gone away on a trip, but most of you have traveled away from home, you might have fun, you might enjoy yourself, but is there anything like getting home? You walk in the door. And even home has its own distinct smell. Mostly good, right? It's not bad. But you walk in the door and you're like, ah. And my question for you this morning is, where's home for you? Where is home for you? Is there a difference between you and the world? I want you to see something. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise. God promised Abraham a land of promise. And Abraham got there. Okay? And you notice what Hebrews says in verse 9. Abraham went to live in the land of promise, and it says, as in a foreign land. Now, that kind of strikes you as interesting. It should. It did me. Abraham gets what God promised him. At least it seems like it. He gets to the land of promise, and what does he do? Well, he chops down these amazing cedars and builds himself this mansion and this great big camel ranch. And no. What, is it, what does he do? Lives in a tent. He lives in a tent. So Abraham is in the land of promise, but it says, Scripture says he's living as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with, with him of the same promise. Listen to verse 10. This is incredibly important. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is who? God, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants. 
as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Listen to this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. But wait a minute. Didn't God give them the promised land? He did. But Abraham knew. You see that? We're so worried about a piece of real estate over in the Middle East. Abraham wasn't. Where was Abraham looking? Well, Abraham was looking with the eyes of faith. And where was he looking? He was looking towards a city that had a foundation whose maker was God, not an earthly city. But listen to this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged, listen to this, and having acknowledged that they were strangers. The word strangers in the Greek is the word xenos. We get the word xenophobia for that. Everybody's throwing that one around lately. He said, these, these believers were looking with the eyes of faith and they saw themselves as strangers and pilgrims. They didn't belong here. They weren't with their home people. They saw themselves as exiles away from their people while on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. What are we talking about all the time now? Returning, returning to the land, returning to the land. Abraham had the land and he didn't, he didn't put down roots. Why? Because that was just a picture of the promise. He was looking forward to the actual the real thing. He said this, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has pre prepared for them a city. And it's, it's, it's a very similar picture to when we see Moses dying. And Deuteronomy 34 tells us his natural force had not abated. But what, where do we find Abraham is his Israel's about to go into the promised land. Moses is up on Mount Nebo looking at into the promised land. And God blesses him with a vision to see it. But he's like, you can't go in. They saw through the eyes of faith that there was a better place. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What day is that? Day of judgment. I urge you. Peter's telling the believer that they are sojourners and exiled, exiled um, people. I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting that. First Peter 2, 11 and 12. Where do we live? Where's home for us? It's awfully easy to put down roots here, isn't it? You heard people use that term. We just bought our forever home. 
No, you didn't. You're going to die. If this is your forever home, I'm sad for you. But have you heard people say that? This is it. That's what secularism is, by the way. Live for the moment. Carpe diem. Seize the day. It's all we have. Right? No. We don't belong here. We are not those who dwell on the earth. Well, what do you mean? Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You were earth dwellers. What Paul is saying. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And listen to this. There's this really cool app. If you don't have it, you should get it. I highly recommend it. It is, uh, it's called Life360. And I, I know exactly where Maddie is. And I always compare that to where she's supposed to be. And Cameron and Julie, if they have a phone, you know where they're supposed to be. And by the way, they, they're counting and keeping track on how many times I use them for sermon illustrations. So it's a little competition with them. It does. It does. Why were you going so fast, Cameron? It's not accurate. I can tell you on the speed, it's not accurate. I was not going that fast. But, but where, where do we live? Listen, I want you to, to listen to this. Verse 6 of Ephesians 2. He has raised us up with him and, listen, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Where, where are we? Say, well, I'm in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, on planet Earth. No, Paul says, if you have been born again of the Spirit of God, where are you? You are seated in the heavenlies. Yes, that's the next verse, brother. I'll spare you that verse because you already got it. We are seated in the heavenlies. Is that just future tense? No, he's saying you are now. Yes, your body is there on earth, but you are already in glory with the Lord. You are not an earth dweller. Philippians 3. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. Live for the moment. And their glory in their shame with minds set on what? Earthly things. But our citizenship is where? heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him 
even to subject all things to himself. We don't belong here. That's important to understand because Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia, while I bring judgment on this world, yes, you'll be present, but I'm going to keep you. I'm going to keep you from spiritual harm. That's the ultimate harm, isn't it? They can kill our bodies. They can hurt us physically. No, and by the way, nobody wants to go through that. That's why, that's why the, the doctrine of, of the uh, rapture is very popular. I'm getting out of Dodge, right? It's cozy for us. But do you see the difference between the church and those that dwell on the, the earth? Where is home for you? That's my question. What a powerful picture we have in Lot and his wife. When the angels come to Lot and say, we are going to call down fire from heaven. We're going to destroy these cities. Get your family and get out. And Lot hangs on to the very last second. And they leave. Him and his two daughters. They leave their husbands behind. His wife leaves with him. And what happens? You know the story well. Why does she look back? Why does she look back? The angel said very specifically, leave and don't look back. But why did she? Ah, missing my homeland. I'm missing my people. Love this world. And as soon as she turned back, God turned her into salt. Missed her home. My question this morning for us is, what home do we miss? Will we miss this one when the works that are here in this world are burned up? Will we miss it? Or are we homesick for a better country. Promise number two, I will be back soon. Verse 11, I am coming soon or quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. How, what do we make of this? What do we make of this? There are those that say quickly doesn't mean quickly. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And thankfully, and I'm not sure if it's first or second Peter, I had second Peter but double check me, brother. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this, and this is how Peter answers this very question. When Because it, it, after the departure of Jesus, after he is resurrected from the dead, the church is immediately what? They're looking for his return, right? Now, the apostles and the writers of Scripture, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, make it clear that the return of Christ is imminent. So, are they wrong? Maybe Scripture is not God-breathed, as some would argue. No, Peter, Peter shows us how to think about this. In 2 Peter chapter 3, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder. Why? Because we forget that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophet or prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers or mockers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? So the scoffers will say, 
church, you have said Jesus is coming back. Where is he? Why isn't he back? Maybe the Bible isn't true. It's what the scoffers and the mockers are saying now. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter, verse 5, 2 Peter chapter 3 says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact. They might be suppressing some truth here, Peter says. They deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed, that then existed, was deluged with water and perished. God, from the foundation of the world, when he created the heavens and the firmament, stored up water. Why? Peter reminds us, for the coming day of judgment. For that day when Noah would build the ark and mankind in wickedness would disobey God and God would flood the world. That was not a plan B for God. But look at verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. You know what that word stored means? It means deposited for payment. We, we could put it in terms of this. Have you ever written a bad check? Nobody will admit it, will they? Like, I, I'm getting paid tomorrow. I'm going to send the check out today. It's not quite yet, but they will be. So I'm going to put the check in the mail. By the time the check gets there, the funds will be good. Is that what they call it? Mailing a check in faith, in good faith? Yeah. Um, the scripture is telling us here that the funds are in the account. That's what this word means. They are stored up. God has deposited the funds into the account. It's waiting, and it's waiting on one thing. Read a little further. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8, but do not overlook this fact, beloved, that the Lord... One with the Lord, one day, what? Is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. I want you to see what is holding back his return. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. Here's the accusation, right? God, you're not keeping your word. You are asleep at the wheel. Peter says, No, he's not. He is patient. And who is he patient towards? He says, you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, look at the context of who he's talking to there. First Peter 1 Peter 1.1, those of like precious faith. God is not waiting to return for the whole world to be converted. This is not a verse for universalism, as some would count it. Or a God that is wringing his hands in desperation and frustration because the whole world has not repented. That's not what this is saying. What, what Peter is saying is the Lord is gathering his elect. And when that last elect is gathered, read Matthew 24, what's going to happen? The heavens that are stored up. Guess what? Judgment's coming. But the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved. 
what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In other words, Peter's saying, while the prognosticators are trying to set dates, Christian, what should you be worried about? Your life? What should I be worried about in light of the fact that Christ will be coming back soon to judge this world with fire in which this world is stored up for it? Well, I, I need to figure out who the Antichrist is. I need to figure out what the mark of the beast is. Hmm. Because if I know that, then I know when he's coming and I can put dates together and boom, then I'll know when to get serious about my relationship with God. That's what we're really saying, isn't it? What we're really saying is when we're trying to figure out the date is when do I have to get serious about my relationship with the Lord? That's what nobody wants to say. Jesus says, none of your business. I will come back as a thief in the night. What should we be worried about? Our lives. What are your lives in terms of holiness and godliness? That should be our concern. Waiting for and hastening, that is seeking eagerly the coming of the day of God. Listen, if your life is right, there's nothing keeping you from from praying earnestly that God will come back soon. Let me say that again. If your life is as it ought to be, there is nothing preventing you from from crying out to God, come, Lord Jesus, come soon. It's those of us that want, well, and and we've all been guilty of this, haven't we? Especially young people. Well, I want the Lord to come back. I want to get married first. Well, I want to have kids. Well, I'd love to see my career blossom and my 401k just skyrocket. Someday I can enjoy retirement. And then, well, of course, I want to see my grandkids. You see what we do? We put deeper and deeper roots here. We don't live here. We're not from here as believers. And the older I get, let me tell you this. I have 10 amazing, wonderful children. I love every one of them. But that should not keep us from wanting to be with him. It should not keep us from having a heartache of of a sense of knowing that I don't belong here. I don't fit in here. This is not my people here. How do we hold fast? Well, Well, Peter just told us this, right? While we're waiting and hastening for the coming of the Lord, pay attention to your life. Look after our own lives. Strive for holiness and godliness. Make war with sin. Fight those six-fingered giants we talked about this morning. And six-toed, waiting and seeking eagerly the day of the Lord for his return. Promise number three. We're almost done, I promise. I will give the victor a new name and home. This is, this is mind-blowing to me. And we have seen this. The statement after every letter to every one of the seven churches, to him that overcomes, I will. To the victor, I will. Um, who are the victors? In the Greek, it's the word nikeo, which, by the way, for those of you that are wearing tennis shoes this morning, guess, yes, yeah, Nike, victory. 
The word means to win, to defeat. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia, the genuine believer, you are winners. You are winners. I can tell you this, not every day do I feel like a winner. Do you? I remember mocking the song when I was a a ute. In 1975, there was a song that came out, and I'm hearing Casey Kasem's voice in my head. Mark, you know who I'm talking about. Some of you guys are like, who's Casey Kasem? Number six on the America's Top 40 was Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. You remember that song? Some of you know that song. Tim, you know that song. It was awful. And I remember as a four-year-old making fun of that song. And then when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, feelings. I told the guys the other night, I had this distinct, and this was just the week that beat all weeks. The, The pump in the well went bad. And I remember walking back to my, my office as I'm trying to handle that and do work at the same time. And the, the distinct thought came into my head, you are cursed. You are cursed. I'm like, where did that come from? I felt cursed. So what do we do with our feelings? We don't feel like winners, do we? In fact, More often than not, we feel the exact opposite. But is that objectively true? No. So who are the winners? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you this, brothers, verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable perishable body must put on the imperishable perishable and the mortal must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in what? It's the same word. To those that conquer, I will make pillars in my temple. It's the same word. Paul continues, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives what? Us the victory. How do we get the victory? Through Jesus Christ. That's an important prepositional phrase, isn't it? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You may feel like a loser, but the objective truth is you are a victor. You are a victor. Satan says you're cursed. God says you're blessed because you're a victor. If we are in Christ, he has already given us the victory. Already. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in his book on spiritual depression, its causes and its cures. He says this, truth comes to mind and to the understanding enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Then having seen the truth, the Christian loves it. It moves his heart. 
If you see the truth about yourself as a slave of sin, you will hate yourself. Then as you see the glorious truth about the love of Christ, you will want it. You will desire it. So the heart is engaged. Truly, to see the truth means that you are moved by it and that you love it. You cannot help it. If you see truth clearly, you must feel it. Then, then that it turns, um, then that in turn leads to this, and your greatest desire will be to practice it and love it. What is what is Dr. Jones talking about here? Feelings cannot lead. Feelings have to follow truth. What matters is truth. Feelings will come after that. But we have been duped so many times into thinking that I must lead with my feelings. I must lead with my emotions. We must lead with the truth. And when we follow the truth, our emotions will follow after. That is how we have joy. Joy has nothing to do with our circumstances. For the average Christian to have joy in the middle of tribulation, you would look at them and say, you are crazy. You have lost your mind. You're out of your ever living mind. Why? Because feelings have nothing to do with it. They follow the truth. And the truth is we are already victors. Listen to what John says in 1 John 5, 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God does what? Overcomes the world. For everyone that has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Where's that faith come from? Yes, it's a gift. Who is it that overcomes? By the way, it's the same word in the Greek. Who is it that overcomes the world except for the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you want to know what makes you a winner? You have been born again by the Spirit of God. He that has been born of God. That's the, the idea of regeneration. That's, that means everything. That's what separates the believer in the church of Philadelphia from the synagogue of Satan, isn't it? They're over there dead as a doornail doing everything they can to get right and follow the law of God. And over here you have the, the, the church in Philadelphia who has been born again in the spirit of God. They're alive. They're alive. Because they're alive, they're victors. Who are the winners? Those that have been united to Christ by faith. And the question for us this morning is, have we been united to Christ by faith? If we have, then we don't need to worry about the outcome here, do we? We're already winners. If it ends today, we've won. Satan doesn't like that, by the way. He would much rather you walk away thinking, I'm a loser. I'm a loser. I'm a loser. What is the prize for the winner? The prize for the winner is a permanent home in the presence of God. Now, if you remember, when we talked about the context for the church in Philadelphia, they lived in a place that had enormous, um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? They had earthquakes, volcanoes. What do you call that? Yeah, they had a lot of natural calamities, right? And you remember the city of Philadelphia was destroyed and they rebuilt it. Caesar rebuilt it and he, he held taxes off for five years. <clears throat> and so they said, this is the new city of Caesar. And, and God has a sense of humor. He does. This is a poke right in Caesar's eye. 
right in Caesar's eye. This is my city. This church is my city. And he says this. For the winner, he has a permanent home in the presence of God. For, for lack of time, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but Revelation 21, 9 through 23 talks about the city coming down from heaven. And it describes, and it, it's, it's a mirror picture of um, Ezekiel 48, and where Ezekiel's told to measure the city. And, and here is the city in its perfection. And it's a picture of who? It's a picture of the church. And we'll get to that. But I want you to see verse 22. And this is, this is very interesting. John says, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Wait a second. In the letter to the church in Philadelphia, God says, for him that overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple. Then John says, as he's looking at the city, I don't see a temple. I don't see a temple. And, and what does the scripture say? Yes. And God is the temple, it says. So what is he saying when he says, I will make you a pillar in the temple? It, what is a pillar? If, if you take a pillar away from a building, what happens? It falls, right? This is foundational. Construction 101, by the way. For all of those that got it right, you can get a job with me and we'll build things. It's fundamental. If you kick the sticks out from under the corners, it's going to collapse. What is, what is Jesus saying here? What is he promising? You will have a place of permanence in my presence. This is the whole picture of redemptive history. Jesus in John chapter 17, praying to the Father that they may be one as we are one. The, the net goal for the entire church, all of redemption history works toward the, towards this driving fact that God will bring his people into his presence. The first thing the angel says to Mary in Matthew chapter one, as he tells her she's about to give birth to a son who had known, known no man. Do you remember what she said to name him? She'll call his name Emmanuel. What is that? God with us. If, if it wasn't for Jesus, the Emmanuel, guess what? We couldn't be in fellowship with God. Jesus says to the victor, I will bring into close fellowship with me. That's our prize. We're all worried about, oh, we're going to get this crown. We're going to get that. No. You know what our prize is? We will be in close fellowship. We see a glimpse of that when Moses says to God when he's on Mount Sinai, let me see your back as you walk by. What did Moses want to see? The sanctified man wanted to see what? The face of God. The driving desire for Moses was not the promised land. It was to see the face of God. God said, Moses, you can't see me like you are. So we have to the victor. His, we will be in his presence and we will see him as he is. And then lastly, I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven 
in my own new, new name. I promise I'm almost done. I know this has been long. He says, I will write on him a new name. In Revelation 22, verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Listen, they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will, not, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Where did he say his name would be? On their foreheads. Now, if you watch any sort of theology on TV, and I don't, but if you do, one of the primary things you're going to hear about is Mark of the Beast. Mark of the Beast. What is the Mark of the Beast? It should be a Jeopardy question. It's that frequently asked. But the real question ought to be, what is the Mark of God? Because if I know what the Mark of God is, guess what? I don't care about the Mark of the Beast. You know why? Because the Mark is a Mark of Ownership. If I have the mark of God on me, I belong to him. I don't belong to Satan anymore. Go back to Ephesians chapter 2. And you have to quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. You were a child of disobedience. And you lived under a spirit who worked, and it uses the word effectually, in the children of disobedience. Satan's work in his people that dwell on the earth is to work effectually in their lives to destroy them. He's a great counterfeiter. While the, the spirit of God is working effectually in his people, Satan's working effectually in his. So how do we know these promises are real? How do we know these promises are true and that God will do what he says? Well, he gave you proof. He gave you proof. You say, what, how do, what is that? Ephesians 1, verse 13, in him, here is the mark of God. I'm going to tell you what the mark of the beast is. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You know what the mark of God is? Revelation 7, 2 through 3, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Everybody's talking about, was it a chip? Is it a tattoo? We're missing the forest for the trees. The mark of God is the vital mark. We had the mark of Satan before you were saved. You belong to him. It is a mark of ownership. It's a mark of ownership. And if you're a child of God, guess what? You don't have to worry about the mark of the beast. You don't have to worry about it. The world is fretting over it. To say the church is fretting over it. Ephesians 4.30, grieve not the Holy Spirit by whom you were what? Sealed for the day of redemption. The proof that God has given to his church that he will keep his promise is the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's the mark. 
If you're a child of God, you are sealed. He has put his name on you. He owns you. And guess what? It's a guarantee. The word seal there is a stamp of preservation. Satan can't have you. You don't belong to him anymore. You cannot be plucked out of the Father's hands. We need not miss the forest for the trees. There are two marks in the book of Revelation. One is the mark of the beast. The other, and that mark, by the way, is for those who dwell on the earth. Those who make this place their home. And then lastly, verse 13, listen if you can. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you're going to hear the message of Scripture, it's a message from who? What does he say right here? It's a message from the Spirit. How do I hear a message from the Spirit? Guess what? Can't do it if I'm dead, can I, spiritually? Goes right back to what we just talked about. For those that have the mark of God, they're spiritually alive. And for those that are spiritually alive, guess what? They can hear. Last passage, I promise. Matthew 13, and we're done. Matthew 13, verse 7. Other seeds, this is uh, the parable of the sower. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples are perplexed. Disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Who's Jesus talking to, by the way? Synagogue of Satan. He answered them, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would hear them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. How do we hear what the Spirit says to the churches? You must be born again. You must. It's not about how smart you are. It's not about how how well raised you are. Must be born again the question for us this morning is do we have ears to hear have we been born again let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the precious promises that you have given to your people father we ask that you would help us to remain faithful indeed lord we know that the only faithfulness that we can ever have is because of you in your, in your hand that keeps us and upholds us and causes us to persevere. Because when trouble comes, Lord, we would wither away 
like yesterday's lawn mowing clippings. We wouldn't last. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a stamp of ownership, that you have given us your spirit. Father, because of that, you will make good on your promises to keep us and to uphold us. We thank you for these precious promises this morning, Father. Help us to remember that we have already won, that we are victors in Christ, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of tribulation here in this life. We know that we have a home waiting for us, a far better place. Help us to set our eyes on that. Thank you for this time this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.